Hello, my name is Peter Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism at Manchester Metropolitan University and I'm joined by my MMU journalism colleague, Elna Schember Critchley. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Pete. Where are we, Ellie? Uh, we're at the Printworks building in Manchester City Centre. Uh, it's a part of the city that was extensively redeveloped since the IRA bombing near the Arndale Centre in 1996. Um, and before it became the cinema and entertainment venue that it is now, this building has one of the largest newspaper printing complexes in the UK. It was actually nicknamed the Fleet Street of the North because the northern editions of the string of titles such as the Daily Telegraph, Sunday Times and the Daily Mirror printed here. Um, in its heyday, it was the busiest printing press in Europe. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of copies of the Daily Mirror, the Daily Dispatch, were sitting right under the, the, the old window for that. The Daily Dispatch, the Manchester Evening Chronicle, and other titles were printed here every day of the week. The building was opened in the 1870s as the Whitty Grove Printing House, and it was operated by the newspaper magnate Edward Halton. Over the years, it changed hands several times, first to Allied newspapers, and then later it was bought up by the disgraced late Mirror Group proprietor, Robert Maxwell. He closed the building in 1986 and it lay idle until those redevelopments of the late 1990s. Yeah, this building represents one side of the history of newspapers and journalism in Manchester. But actually, we've come here to look at some less well-known traditions of journalism in the city and around the northwest of England. It's a tradition of radical writing and reporting which dates back 200 years and which weaves a unique and continuous thread from a wave of pro-democracy protests in the early 19th century right through to the present day. You just have to know where to look. Yeah, absolutely. So in this podcast, we'll be getting the help of some guides to show us where those threads began and where they lead to today. We start the journey just a couple of hundred metres from here in the John Rylands Library, which is just off Deansgate. That's where I met the archivist, Fran Baker. Now, she looks after all the materials the library has that are related to the Manchester Guardian. It's the paper we now know just as The Guardian. But Fran explains how the paper was founded in the early 19th century by a group of businessmen in the city who were appalled by the brutal suppression of the pro-democracy movement of the time. Here's Fran Baker. This was a period when um, the population of Manchester was exploding really as people were coming to work in the factories um, but there was no political representation for the city at that time. Um, there were two MPs who covered the whole of, of Lancashire. Um, to vote you literally had to travel to Lancaster to, to cast your vote um, and the suffrage was quite limited. You had to be a man um, owning a property of a certain rental value. Um, so there was a general feeling that social reform was required, better parliamentary representation. Um, and that kind of came to a head in 1819 with what's become known as the Peterloo Massacre, essentially a, a, a peaceful meeting. People had come from Manchester and the surrounding towns to listen to the orator Henry Hunt talk um, in favour of, of political reform. Um, and essentially the, the cavalry and the local yeomanry were sent in um, sort of rather brutally and violently um, split up the meeting resulting in the deaths of up to about 15 people I think and the injury of, of hundreds of others. One of the people who was there um, at the, on the day was um, someone called John Edward T 
tailor. He was a cotton merchant um, based in Manchester, but he, he also had an interest in social reform, political representation, um, and was a member of a small group known as the Little Circle of similar like-minded men who would meet and, and sort of discuss how they would promote and disseminate um, their views. Um, Taylor, actually, uh, on the day of Peterloo itself, um, the Times journalist who was up from London um, ended up, I think, being arrested. Um, Taylor wrote an account of the massacre, which he sent to a London paper, um, simply to ensure that it wasn't just the magistrate's view that was heard. He was trying to get a sort of truthful account um, out there into the public. Um, as a result of Peterloo, the government tried to clamp down on big political meetings like this. They passed something called the Six Acts. Um, one element of those acts um, focused on the press, basically. It extended what was known as stamp duty, essentially tax, um, to a wider range of publications in an attempt to kind of stamp down the radical press of the day. Sort of leading on from that, John Edward Taylor and his friends and associates, most of them also involved in the cotton trade in Manchester, most of them were Unitarians, all of them were kind of liberal in their political um, outlook, decided that what they really needed was a newspaper that would disseminate their views and, and, and publicise the case for um, political reform. Um, they decided that John Edward Taylor himself was probably the best person to edit such a newspaper. They came together um, and 11 different people pledged money. They pledged a total of £1,100 to kind of fund the founding of the newspaper. So what we've got here is um, the original legal agreement. It's signed, stamped and sealed. That's the, the kind of earliest document we've got out here today. It was um, signed on the 28th of April, 1821. This is the, the very, very first issue of the Manchester Guardian, issued on May the 5th, um, 1821. Um, one thing you'll immediately um, be struck by is the fact that there isn't any news on the front page. It actually starts with an advert for a, a lost dog. Um, all the classified ads appear on the front. Um, this was partly because raising revenue through advertisements was quite a key thing. So um, in the top right-hand corner, you'll see there's a very a faint stamp. Um, that actually relates to the tax that newspapers were forced to pay at this time um, by the government. For a four-page newspaper like this, um, four pence had to be paid to the government, um, which meant they, it had to be sold at a higher sum than that in order to break even. So this came out at this time once a week. They couldn't afford or justify to have um, a daily paper at that time outside of London because of the expense involved. Um, so it came out each Saturday and it was priced at seven pence, which wasn't cheap um, in those days. Well, essentially, the, the government stamp really um, meant that the newspaper couldn't be a daily paper. It had to have quite a high cover price to, to cover costs. Um, there were other newspapers around which were essentially illegal. They were unstamped. Um, they tended to be much more radical in their outlook, so although The Guardian was a paper that was promoting reform, it was very much a sort of moderate, um, kind of liberal paper. Um, initially it came out every Saturday. In 1836 um, they decreased, the government decreased stamp duties to just one penny, which meant they could go to um, being issued twice a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday. It was that reduction um, in stamp duty that really benefited papers like The Guardian, um, 
as opposed to the, the cheaper um, sort of unstamped press. It, it, it really hit them much more, more hard. Um, and finally, in 1855, um, stamp duty was abolished altogether, um, which meant finally it could become a daily paper. Fran Baker from the John Rylands Library. And we'll hear more from Fran later, because it's a fascinating period the history of journalism, and not just journalism in Manchester, but also for a great tradition of journalism that's linked to radical politics in the North West, and more widely around the UK. As Fran mentioned, there were scores of new, but mostly illegal newspapers, from the Poor Man's Guardian, or the Red Republican, to the Northern Star, which was effectively the mouthpiece for the national leadership of the Chartists. They were illegal, because they refused to pay that stamp duty, which would have made them too expensive for most people to read. Absolutely, Ellie, and the movement was met with years of repression from successive governments, which represented only the big landowners and the aristocracy. Newspaper editors, writers, and the activists who distributed or read the unlicensed Chartist papers were hounded, jailed, and prosecuted. It's a time which also led to a major and possibly fatal division in the movement. Here's Darren Treadwell from the People's History Museum. There was a strain within Chartism what they called the, uh, that was called the full force or the moral force. Do you use violence if necessary to get what you want or do you use uh, persuasion? Um, Vincent was, as they would say nowadays, conflicted about this. You know, sometimes, this letter here, for instance, he wrote when he was in prison in Hull in 1837. Um, and it's quite a good letter. In it, he talks about, um, he uses phrases like the, go the government uh, of the day. The, he said, the Whigs, the Whigs are smashed and the Tories are all gone to the devil. Um, Democrats, we need a good body of Democrats. To he was part of the full force Chartist movement. Um, slightly later, he changed. But um, it, it's essentially the thing that split Charters, which in many ways essentially split people now going right through to things like say, the poll tax riot of 30 years ago did you appeal to people as a moral argument or do you use violence to get what you want it's just, and it's an interesting theme that runs through charters and all the way through most of sort of British radical extra parliamentary activity to that history really. Darren Treadwell at the People's History Museum but that optimism didn't last did it we know that the Chartist demand for universal suffrage didn't come to pass for decades. So, Pete, was this the end of radical journalism and writing in Manchester? No, not by a long way, Ellie. The tradition of reporting linked to political activism continued to thrive in Manchester. In fact, one of the journalists at that Red Republican newspaper we mentioned earlier on, Helen McFarlane, she was the first person to translate the Communist Manifesto into English. And in many ways, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels' best-known work was actually born right here in Manchester, less than half a mile away from the print works where we are, in the Chetham Library. John Schofield, who's editor-at-large of the Manchester Confidential website, took me on a tour of the building. Well, this is one of the most famous tables in Manchester, if not the most famous table in Manchester, because a world ideology began here. This is where Marx met Engels. Engels lived for 22 years in Manchester, and Marx would come up and visit him for months at a time. And they sat around this table, these are facsimiles of some of the books they read, and they sat around this table studying, but also reading newspapers and also writing articles for the various publications they wrote for. Engels made money from his articles, but also working with his father in Manchester, uh, well, working with his father's company, his father wasn't here, uh, but 
Marx really only made money from his writings, and it was never enough, so Engels had to send him money all the time. The whole ethos of the politics behind that is really the ethos of how Manchester's newspaper industry begins in the first place, because they always had an edge. To begin with, they were either very Tory, uh, conservative, and they were called Tory at the time, either so church and king, supporting that establishment, or they were radical and left. We can see just how much of that tradition lives on in the work of so many journalists based here in Manchester. So, just as the Industrial Revolution and the Peterloo Massacre gave birth to the Manchester Guardian, the economic depression and the anti-fascist movement of the 1930s gave rise to what is arguably the greatest period of journalism at the Guardian, under its editor C.P. Scott. Here's Fran Baker again. The archive becomes really strong from around the 1860s onwards, right up to the 1970s, um, starting really with the um, editorship of um, C.P. Scott, who was editor for about 50 years, late 19th, early 20th century, and it became a little bit more radical in, in its viewpoint um, during his editorship, so he spoke out um, against imperialism and Britain's involvement in the Boer War. Um, he was in favour of women's suffrage. Um, so it, it, it's a really well-covered period, that, that sort of early 20th century period. Another particular strength is um, foreign correspondence within, um, between the two world wars, so sort of interwar period, when the correspondents were writing back from the continent to their editor in the UK. Um, you get all that kind of background detail about what should what's going to be covered um, how they're going to cover it um, and also the the danger that the um, correspondents were actually in themselves being um, stationed in those various countries Fran Baker at the John Rylands Library. Now, one of the towering figures at The Guardian during those C.P. Scott years was the renowned writer George Orwell. He wrote extensively about English society during those interwar years, with one of his best-known works being The Road to Wigan Pier, in which he reported on the lives of homeless people, people on precarious wages, and generally people on the edge of poverty. Claire Donnelly of the Daily Mirror co-edited a project in 2017 called Wigan Pier Revisited, which looked again at Orwell's journey, but from our perspectives today. Claire told me Orwell would have recognised very similar conditions in contemporary Britain, and he would have recognised a continuing tradition of radical journalism. I think it is here because I think it never went away. I think it kind of transformed itself. I think print media and broadcast media here have, have kind of stayed and endured throughout the kind of 80s and 90s. Um, offices stayed open in Manchester especially. And I think the um, I think Media City has contributed to that. It's become a big news hub. So I think the Northern Voice is very much listened to. Um, and I think Manchester still is quite a politically radical city in Liverpool. There's a lot to write about and a lot to record and, and a lot to cover. Um, I th so I think it's still there, but I think actually it's been reinvigorated by smaller kind of micro news sources. So campaigning groups in the area then turning into journalists and sources of news reporting that report on themselves. And I think that then feeds into the national media. It means that national media can't afford to ignore those stories and the people that are that are writing them really i think that kind of campaign uh, kind of citizen journalism is kind of much maligned but actually i think it's a wonderful thing i think it gives everyone a bit of a kick up the bum really and kind of reinforces our radical roots and reminds us why we need to continue to be radical is there still a kind of identifiable kind of reporting or topics that are covered around this part of the world. I don't think that kind of unique radical tradition, that tradition that originated in the Northwest, 
um, is necessarily unique anymore. I think there are radical journalists working in the Northwest, but that they are working elsewhere in the UK. And I think because so much of what we write about and report is is national and global, um, I, I don't think I don't think there are unique issues to the Northwest. I think there are unique issues to the North. I think there is a very real North-South divide, but I think equally there's a big kind of London rest of the UK divide as well. You know, I think it's interesting. I think the battle lines are drawn in different ways now. So I think, you know, in terms of remain or leave, in terms of class structures, economics. So I think it's a bit more complex. I don't think the North West stands alone as such. But there are still, there is, so there is still a tradition of radical journalism. It's just maybe not identifiable with, yeah. with the Northwest. Yeah, yeah, that's what I think. I don't think it's uniquely Northwestern. I think there are, you know, I think anywhere where there has been, that, that's kind of post-industrial or that's suffering economic hardship. So, you know, it could be easily somebody working from um, a seaside town in the Southwest as it could be someone working in a... Um, uh, a kind of economically poor district of Leeds. You know, I think the issues are the same. I think austerity and, and um, the government's kind of campaign of cuts in recent years is hitting people in lots of those communities. And I think what radical journalism across the UK can do is actually show us how these parts of the UK are similar and how people are being affected in, in kind of similar ways across the UK. We live in an age where communities are being pitted against each other, and actually part of the kind of modern journalist job, I would say, is to try and show communities what they have in common, whether that's shared kind of deprivation, shared problems, or, or shared solutions, and that kind of cross-community support. So that's Claire Donnelly from the from the Mirror, and uh, I've now I've now come back from Claire's house in Todmorden, rushed over the hill, come back to to Manchester, and I'm on the MMU campus with Ellie now. Now, Claire talked about citizen journalism and how journalism itself may not have changed, but what people understand to be a journalist has changed. Now that's one of the things that you and I look at in in one of the courses that we teach, isn't it? We do. We explore it in different ways in journalism, media and society, where we uh, examine the role of the journalist um, within the wider context of the place and space and society in general. Um, and I think having our students think more deeply about that context enables them to think more keenly about who they are then as a journalist. But I'd like to ask our section leader and... Um, well, yeah, because the boss is listening. The boss is listening here. So let, let's ask Natalie about this. This is Natalie Griffith. Hello. I think we find that um, students who are coming to join us to study journalism quite often don't realise they're already contributing to the, the news agenda by their own citizen journalism or by um, blogging, vlogging, whatever they're doing. Um, and they see themselves perhaps as quite separate to journalists. So what we'd like to encourage them to recognise is that that contribution is valid um, and um, equipped with the knowledge and the skills and the, the firm foundations of traditional journalism. Um, enables them to operate in a credible um, environment as a credible journalist, still contributing, um, but contributing with um, the foundations, the solid foundations of the journalism industry. 
And how does that come out in practice? I mean, what kind of, apart from GMS, when you look at the history and the ethics and stuff, in practice, what other courses will they be involved in? Well, the programme is very heavily production and practical based. So students um, will find themselves working in a newsroom environment. They will find themselves working on live Uh, real-time news, contributing to the news agenda in Greater Manchester and beyond, operating as a team, producing um, written uh, digital broadcast journalism um, and and really working to demonstrate um, um, a a skills base um, uh, pitched against the framework of um, units like Journalism, Media and Society where they understand the context against which they are operating as journalists. So, for example, students will find themselves um, out and about in the city conducting interviews related to and very relevant to news that's breaking uh, on any given day, at any given time. Um, we'll come back to our newsroom, which is set up very much um, as a professional um, environment, and then be supported by tutors um, and their cohort to produce real-time live um, packages, pieces of journalism. Um, Obviously that will be assessed from an academic perspective but it would also be viewed from a professional uh, journalism perspective as well. And And it's that sense of professionalism, that team working and that putting those skills into practice which I think differentiates that citizen journalism, that acting alone with a small group of people but acting then as a professional core of journalists. Absolutely. And I think the word I would use is is the journalistic credibility that that brings to a student's profile um, and to a student's portfolio of work. This work hasn't been done in isolation. Um, Students have been guided by um, a staff base of tutors who all have relevant expertise, relevant experience in the industry and can help guide um, and facilitate them to produce work of a, a high, credible, professional standard. That's Natalie Griffiths, who's the head of our journalism section at MMU. So we're back in the print works again. And what do you think, Ellie? Where can we see signs of that radical tradition today? Well, in some ways it was visible in sections of the music journalism that flourished around Manchester from the 1980s and 90s and into the early noughties. To hear more, we went to speak to the music journalist Dave Haslam, who's been right at the heart of that movement for decades. He tells how he included articles in his magazine, Debris, which describes events here in the 1930s as a way of putting events in the 1980s into a context that people might challenge rather than accept them. We were going through unemployment. We were going through North-South divide. Uh, We also had the threat of war because we had nuclear weapons. Um, uh, We had Reagan and Thatcher who were kind of itching to get involved with the you know, and, and take on the Russians. So a lot of what had happened in the 1930s, in a way, was happening in the 1980s. So I, I like, kind of like the idea that, that you would go into, you know, a gig and you'd go and see, yeah, some kind of punky band or some post-punky band play, and I'd sell you a fanzine for 40p, and you'd go home and you'd read a four-page piece about you know, life in the 1930s. But for me, that was it was a, a, an important thing about radical journalism isn't just to write about the now, but it's to write about the past 
so that we understand that what we are involved in are long struggles or the long revolution as Raymond Williams calls it. You know, that in Manchester go, go back more than 200 years about democracy, about what stories are told, about how we express ourselves. And so for me, being radical in some ways wasn't just about finding radical music and avant-garde art, but was also to keep alive the radical ideas that had sustained Manchester uh, and, and alternative culture and alternative ideas for decades. That's Dave Haslam's quite optimistic take on how radical journalism can survive in difficult times like these as we see newspapers shrinking and closing with hundreds of journalists being made redundant in the decades since the 2008 banking crisis. It's meant buildings like this are only saved from becoming empty monuments to a lost era by turning into entertainment centres like this. Yeah, but there's also some hopeful signs and signs that this radical tradition of self-starters and alternative voices that we've been talking about in this podcast could also open doors to a new era of journalism. I'm optimistic. Yeah, me too, and I think that tradition um, does inform people in the city and it informs our work, and it's important that we know where we come from um, to, to carry on our work in the present day. So thanks to all of those who've given us their insight and their time for this podcast. And if you've just enrolled as a student on MMU's multimedia journalism course, we hope you find this podcast sets the scene for you. And if you've just arrived in Manchester to study on another course at MMU, we hope you find the podcast helps introduce you to some of our history in the city, its industry and its people. But whatever the reason, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening.